So the last few weeks, we've been looking at different uh, words that are common during the Christmas season. We looked at the joy of Christmas, looked at the hope of Christmas, and we looked at the peace of Christmas. And I want to sum up those three messages with this quote uh, from Charles Spurgeon. Because today, we're going to talk about the choice of Christmas, and everything we've talked about so far leads to today's message. And we're going to look at it through the story of the wise men and King Herod. Um, But there's been no human birth on this earth like the birth of the baby Jesus. But this is what uh, Charles Spurgeon says about all these things we've talked about. But now, when the newborn king made his appearance, the swaddling band with which he was wrapped up was the white flag of peace. That manger was the place where the treaty was signed, whereby warfare should be stopped between man's conscience and himself, man's conscience and his God. It was then, that day, that the trumpet blew, sheath the sword, O man, sheath the sword, O conscience, for God is now at peace with man, and man at peace with God. Do you not feel, my brethren, that the gospel of God is peace to man. Where else can peace be found but in the message of Jesus? That's why the birth of Jesus is unlike any birth in the history of humanity. Because at the birth of Christ, joy was made everlasting and possible for you and I. Hope was revealed And peace was brought between God and man. So if that's all true, which I believe it is, and I believe the Bible says it is, and you probably believe it is, then we are left with a choice. Every human is left with a choice from the birth of Christ. Before he was born in space and time, and after he's been born in space and time, His birth requires everyone to make a choice. And I think there's only two options. There's no middle ground for this choice. And the two options are played out in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, in the story of the wise men from the east and King Herod and the priests of Jerusalem. You can either be a wise man from the east, or you can be Herod and the priests of Jerusalem. When you look at the birth of Christ, there's only those two options. We're going to go through, and this story is going to show us three different things about each, each of these choices. Three different things about the wise men, three different things about Herod and the priests of Jerusalem that show just what their choice regarding Jesus' birth means for them. What it looks like to choose the birth of Christ and what it looks like to reject the birth of Christ. Before we look at that, though, just, by, just to let you know what's going on here. So um, the angels, a couple weeks ago I talked about the joy of Christmas, and the angels that night came to the shepherds the night that Jesus was born, and the shepherds ran, and they went to see Jesus, and then they left, and they were filled with great joy, right? And the hope of the Old Testament was finally revealed and peace was made um, and peace was possible now for men 
and God to be in relationship together. And that night was this glorious, uh, historic night. But the wise men weren't there that night. Those guys didn't come for almost two years. Um, Two years later, the wise men show up. And here's what it says in verse 1 of of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We don't exactly know where these wise men were from, but it's possible and probable that they were from Persia. And these wise men weren't necessarily kings like we sing about or like we uh, are in in the pictures and in the nativity scenes, but they were most certainly uh, other priests, uh, astrologers, uh, higher-ups in the courts of the Persian kingdom. And what's interesting to note or what connection you should draw from that is, uh, remember where we, we took a break from our buddy Daniel. And Daniel was a wise man in the Persian court. Daniel, who years and years and hundreds of years before was making prophecies about the coming Messiah, about the coming kingdom of God, remember that rock that's going to come and destroy all the kingdoms of this earth, all the superpowers that think they are in control, how God is in control and he's going to bring his kingdom. Remember way back then when Daniel made those prophecies, well, isn't it amazing that God had continued to preserve his word in the Persian kingdom. Now, Rome's the empire, the super empire of the day, right? But Persia is still there. And there are people in Persia who have read Daniel, who have believed Daniel, and who have been waiting for the fulfillment of God's prophecies. That's amazing to me. So you have these wise men, and we say three because there's three gifts given, so generally we say three, right? But could have been a lot more. Probably was a lot more. Probably was a big group of these guys who was coming to find, following the star, to find the king of the Jews. So we have them. And then we also have, in verse 1, Herod the king. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you see that name quite a few times, especially during Jesus' life, right? And Herod, there's a couple of different guys named Herod, a couple of different Herods during Jesus' life in the New Testament church. None of them were good, but this is Herod the Great. And he's not great because he's good. (laughs) He's great because as far as earthly rulers go, he is on par with any ruthless emperor you could think of. Nebuchadnezzar, any of the Caesars. Herod was in charge of the Jews, set up by Rome, and he was going to make sure that his power was never thwarted, that his kingdom would never end. He was brutal and ruthless. And you know the story, right? After the wise men leave, we see just exactly what kind of a man he is when he has all the two-year-old and under boys murdered because he feels threatened by Jesus. So you have these two, and then you also have, this is a little bit of a different group that doesn't get much of the spotlight, but still very important. You have... The, uh, the priests of Jerusalem. You have the wise men of the Jews, right? You have the wise men from the east, and you have these wise men from the Jews, those who were chosen by God, the theologians of their day, the pastors of their day, the priests of their day. You have them, and we're going to see exactly how they respond as well to the birth of Christ, what choice they make um, during this Christmas time. So that's the stage. It's kind of set up that way. 
So if you look at uh, uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, So the wise men of the east came to Jerusalem, and they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. The first thing we learn about these wise men is that they are truth seekers. They are interested in the truth of God. Now, just imagine what it would have taken for them. If they came from Persia, could have been a couple of other places in the east. But the point is, they came from somewhere very, very far away. Now, there's no Ubers. There's no planes. There's no Amtraks. There's no cars. You don't just get in. uh, You don't pull up Google Maps and figure out how long it's going to take in the easiest, quickest way without toll roads and all that stuff. Right? Travel back then was not something that everybody looked forward to because it was so great. But it was a dangerous undertaking. It was expensive to travel far, and you could die on the way. Your camels could die on the way. I hope they didn't die in the puppet show. That would have been a little weird, a little awkward. But that could happen. And it takes a lot of work to travel very far back in this time. I mean, when the people from around Jerusalem would come to Jerusalem to celebrate um, things like the Passover, like they didn't do this all the time. It was a once a year big trip that you prepared for for that part of the year, and then you got started getting ready for it as soon as it was over again because it was not an easy thing to travel. And if this is a big group of wise men, I mean, it is going to be a tough trip. But these men who were way, way in the east, were studying the stars, noticing that things were starting to line up with these prophecies, decided it is worth our time and our effort and maybe our lives to make this trip. And we're going to see why a little bit later, but they are convinced that they know exactly who this king of the Jews, this baby, is. And they want to honor him. So they're truth seekers. That's the first thing about these wise men. Now look at the first thing about Herod. So they say, where is, uh, the, uh, where is he born, the king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east, we've come to worship him. And then in verse 3 it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was ecstatic. Couldn't wait to go see the king. No. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem is the city of God, Right? These men come in from the east. These, these guys come in, maybe a lot of fanfare. They're pretty wealthy, pretty higher up guys, right? They come in. Everyone's like, what's going on? This is new and strange. And they say, we are here to see the one that was prophesied. And the response from the city of God, well, from its ruler, is that he's troubled. And the city of God is troubled with him. They don't know what to think about this. And Herod doesn't just know what not, not doesn't just not know what to think. He's concerned. He's threatened. You see Herod isn't a truth seeker. Herod and the city are self seekers. Herod is concerned about himself, his standing, his power, and he doesn't want to take he doesn't want to hear about the birth of Christ because that could mess with the kingdom he's built for himself. 
Herod, who's just a few miles away from where Jesus was born. Herod and the people of Jerusalem who should have been anticipating this and excited for this, and maybe they'd heard from these crazy band of shepherds a couple years ago that something big had happened. Maybe they'd heard all this stuff, and yet they were troubled that it was possibly true, that the Messiah that had been promised had finally come. It wasn't sitting well with them. So we have truth seekers versus self-seekers. The next thing we learn about the wise men and Herod and the the people of Jerusalem, or or the priests of Jerusalem specifically, comes in uh, verses 5 and 6. Uh, well, I'm going to start in verse 3. So, uh, when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, so Herod then gets everybody together because he wants to figure out what's going on, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So, he's not taking this lightly. He's taking this very seriously. Because, like I said, he's threatened by what Jesus represents. So he calls all the wise men of Jerusalem, all the theologians, all the men of God as they would have been known, together. And he says, where is the Christ, which is the name for the Messiah, to be born? And without missing a beat, it doesn't say they went and searched for it and had to figure it out. They knew where he was going to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And then they quote the Old Testament in Micah, and they say, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod's concerned. Herod wants some information. The guys who know what's what and should be anticipating the birth of Christ and the coming of the Messiah, they know exactly where he's to be born. It's in Bethlehem. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Uh, We're going to skip down to verse 10 here, and here's what the wise men do when they get that information. Go down to verse 10. When they saw the star, so they get the information too, right? When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So they are super excited for what's about to happen because they know they're about to see see the Christ, see the king of the Jews. And verse 11, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother. And what do they do? They fall down and worship him. You see the two stark uh, uh, actions The wise men from the east get the information they need, and they basically run to find Christ. The men of God, God's chosen people, the theologians, the priests, they couldn't care less. The wise men are faithful believers, and the men of Jerusalem are simply apathetic. They are so numb that they just don't care. I mean, it doesn't say they run and follow him, right? It doesn't say anybody went with him. Herod wants to know where, the, where the, this threat is. I can't imagine that they thought, oh, Herod definitely wants to go worship him because he's such a nice guy. No, they're like, we'll tell you exactly where he is because they don't care. I think that's a good lesson for anybody here who has been celebrating Jesus at Christmas every year. You might be sitting there saying, oh, well, the choice of Christmas, oh, yeah, that's easy for me. I worship Christ every time. Yes, Christmas is all about Jesus' birth. I think we as believers need to beware that we might become too apathetic to the message 
of the gospel at times. Because there's a stark contrast between the faithful believers and the apathetic believers. Those who don't really care about what the birth of Jesus really means. Or who aren't interested in how God is playing things out. They're more interested in how they want things to play out. So that's the second contrast we see between the wise men and Herod and the priests of Jerusalem. And finally, the third contrast uh, is found. Um, I'm going to go back to verse, uh, no, I'm going to go to verse 11 again. So this is after they find out, right? And they, when they had come, this is the wise men, come into the house. They saw the young child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And what they do? They opened their treasures. They presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, speculation, there could be, you know, significant meanings to these gifts. It's possible. Um, gold is a kingly gift, so they're acknowledging the kingship of Jesus. Makes sense, right? Um, frankincense is a priestly gift, right? Jesus is a king and the great priest, right? There would be frankincense burning um, during sacrifices and, and during priestly things. And myrrh is a spice used to preserve bodies, right? So this could symbolize or it could be foreshadowing or pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to have to die. It's possible that that's what all that means. It's also possible that because of who these guys were, higher-ups in the Persian court, wise men, priests themselves, astrologers, this was the wealth they had And this was the wealth they wanted to give to Christ to honor him. The gifts that they had, what they had been given, they were willing to give to Jesus. Now, this long journey they took, they would have kept these things safe just for this moment. So they were concerned um, with honoring Christ in the best way they could. And this shows that their third characteristic is that they are all about wholehearted worship of Jesus wholehearted worship. They're excited when they find out where he is. They run to see him, and they give him everything they have. They don't hold back. Now, this is maybe more wealth than Mary and Joseph ever saw in their lives. And in just a few days, or maybe a little bit longer, Mary and Joseph are going to have to go on an escape journey where they're going to have to go to Egypt to run from Herod. And God has provided them with everything they need to make that journey there and back. It's just, I don't know, it's fascinating. It's amazing how God works. But whether or not the gifts actually meant something, and somehow these guys knew that, or, or whether they were just the gifts they had to give, the point is that the wise men wholeheartedly worshiped Christ in giving him everything that they had, the best of what they had. So that's how the wise men responded here. And how does Herod respond? Go back to verse 7. So this is after he's now figured out where this Jesus might be born, this king of the Jews, this threat to his kingdom. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he sets up this little council away from everybody else, right? He calls the wise men to him, and he determined from them what time the star appeared, so he figures out about how old this kid might be. He sends them to Bethlehem, and he says, Hey, guys, go search carefully for this young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me so that I can come and worship him also. Because that's what a good Jew would do, right? That's what I should do. That, that, that's, yeah, we're getting excited. The Messiah is here. 
It's going to be good. So let me know where he is because I want to get on that bandwagon with you. Well, if you look at the end of the story in verse 12, you know that that's absolutely not what Herod wanted to do. The wise men wanted to worship Christ with their whole heart, and Herod, who was so selfish and so apathetic to the truth, wanted to murder Jesus, wanted to silence him forever. Now, there's a progression there. Herod is so concerned about his own power and his own kingdom that he will do whatever it takes to get rid of any threat to his throne. Herod's consumed with Jesus' destruction because he's afraid of what Jesus would mean for him. Because he's afraid of the choice of the birth, the, the, the choice that the birth of Christ requires him to make. So we know that doesn't happen because God's in control and he's going to make sure his plan comes through, right? So good. Herod doesn't make it and Herod dies a terrible death later, and, which he deserved, and I'm glad for that too. And that we can put in the puppet show, it's okay with me, but we might not want to. But the point is that the birth of Christ requires life-changing choice. A life-changing choice for good or life-changing choice for evil. If you look at the birth of Christ and you decide it's not for me, you have brought evil on yourself. You are bringing destruction on your own head. It's not just a, well, it's a nice story and that's great, but we got all this other, Christmas is all about joy and family and, and warm feelings and good times and the Hallmark Channel. The birth of Christ is, will you let God make peace with you or will you reject him and continue to be at war with him? So before we end, I want to look, um, I just want to give you three things that Jesus' birth calls you and I to do. And these are going to be from Romans, so you can, you can flip there if you want, or you can just listen. That's whatever you'd like to do. First thing is in Romans 5. This is what, it call, this is what the birth of Christ called Herod to do, and this is what it, uh, the birth of Christ called the Jewish uh, religious leaders to do, and this is what the birth of Christ called the wise men from the east to do. The first thing it calls them to do and it calls you and I to do is to accept the truth of the gospel. Just like I read from Charles Spurgeon, but, you know, Paul says it just as well. In Romans 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then later in verse 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The birth of Christ was the um, beginning in actual time, actual space, actual history of the redemption plan that God had set up from the creation of the world. From the moment sin entered, God put his plan of redemption in motion. And the birth of Christ is the final realization for all those years, all those promises, all those prophecies, all those people who were longing, 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 longing. It was the final, it was the final revelation that this is going to happen. And then, of course, he lives the perfect life. He spends 33 years on this earth 
he dies a horrible death, and then he rises again the third day because death cannot keep God in the grave. So Jesus' birth calls you to accept the truth of the gospel. Will you or won't you? It also calls you to live an active faith. If you look at Romans 6, it says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? If you accept the truth of the gospel, then you accept the fact that you're a sinner and that God came to wash your sins away, and so you cannot live in sin anymore. It should become revolting to you to continue to sin. doesn't mean we're perfect and we just don't sin anymore. It takes a lifetime of sanctification, a lifetime of working on it. But as you grow closer to God, because of the birth of Christ, you realize how terrible your sin is and how you want to avoid it at all costs. And the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit now makes you able to fight the sin in your life. Uh, in verses 12 through f- uh, 14 of that same chapter, Paul goes on and he says this, Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. The uh, choice of, of, of Jesus' birth at Christmas is the choice to not let sin have dominion over your life. And I don't know about you, but if we are really honest with ourselves and we really understand, I think we would all agree that having, letting sin rule my life is not what I want. Because I know that that only leads to destruction. So why not let Christ rule my life and rule it so that I get to live and spend eternity with him. So that's the second thing. And the third thing is this, that the birth of Christ calls you to choose wholehearted worship, just like the wise men. And in chapter 12 of Romans, Paul says this, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Everyone in this room, every child of God, everyone who has made that commitment to the Lord, everyone who's been redeemed and found peace with God has been given gifts. Like the wise men had wealth, they gave it. That's what they knew to give. They also gave a sacrifice of time and danger and they came to worship him and all that other stuff too. But the wise men gave what they could to Jesus. And God's asking you if you follow him, to do the exact same thing, whatever your gift might be. Uh, having then gifts according to the grace that is given, let us use them. If prophecy, then let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If ministry, then let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives, then give with liberality. He who li- leads, then lead with diligence. And he who shows mercy, then show mercy with cheerfulness. And Paul could have gone on and on and on. Whatever your gift is, God's asking you to give it wholeheartedly to him and to the body of Christ because that's what he wants. Jesus' birth calls us to accept the truth of the gospel, to choose an act of faith, and to choose wholehearted worship. So what choice will you make today? 
Will you wake up from the apathy and, and choose to become closer to the Lord? Will you choose for the first time to accept that the birth of Christ is more important than any other thing about Christmas? And without it, you could never have peace or joy or hope. Will you make that choice today? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the birth of Christ. I thank you for the story surrounding the birth, for the example of the shepherds and, and, the, and the angels and the wise men, Father, for all of these people who responded to the gospel call the very first time when you were born. I pray, Lord, that we would be similar examples to other people, that we would run as fast as we could to find you. And, Father, then we would go forth and we would share it with others. Father, thank you that it's a free gift. Thank you that all it takes is simply believing. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's not made that choice, the choice to make Jesus as their Savior, that I pray they would today. And, Father, if there are those of us who are here who have become apathetic to the message of the gospel, Father, please wake us up so that we don't have to just sit around and, and not care, but that we can run to you wholeheartedly. Show us how we can serve you actively. Show us how we can worship you wholeheartedly. And Father, I thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Father, I pray that you'd be with us now in your name. Amen. going to neglect our wholehearted worship of the Lord this year. We're not going to neglect that. That we're going to we're going to worship the Lord. That's one of the biggest indicators that an attitude change has occurred in the heart. And it's one of the best ways to show where we are spiritually speaking, what our spiritual condition is. So, let me suggest that that would be a great 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 new year's resolution. If you don't know the Lord, You've got to accept Christ, who was a man who came as a man, died as a man, to save the sin of man. You see, that's the important thing. Jesus substituted his own life uh, under the curse of the law and died the death on a cross so that we could be free from the penalty of sin. And he came as a man to do that because man had sinned and man needs to pay the penalty. Jesus stepped into your place and into my place to do that. So will you come to Christ as we close the service this morning if you don't know him. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I want you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe in the birth of Christ. I believe in his life. I believe in his death. I believe in his resurrection. Let's all stand together.